Yeah, let me just tell you this. Thank you for being uh, such a generous church uh, that's focused on things other than ourselves, specifically uh, church planting. Um, we have the opportunity again to do more stuff in Cuba now that that has opened up. After next Sunday, I'm going to be in Dallas going through another discovery center with potential church planters. And then the week after that in San Diego, God's doing a ton of stuff in the world of church planting. And thank you for your generosity. I would encourage you uh, to consider how you might continue being generous in that area, specifically for church planting. Um, Because there's a, uh, (laughs) everything else in this world is going to pass away uh, except for, God's kingdom that's established. And so the, the best way we have for reaching people under heaven is by planting churches uh, all over the world. So thank you for your generosity in that. I encourage you to continue to continue in that. Um, in this series, Control Freaks, we're talking about um, God's sovereignty and the idea like how, and we've really been wrestling with that. How much does God control and how much does God allow? Like there are some people who say God controls every little thing. Um, somehow. And then the others who say, well, well, God kind of lets humanity do its thing and then works whatever it has done out for God's good purpose. And, and there's, there's great minds all along that spectrum. How much does God control? And how much does you just allow and works within it? Um, and let me just say this. If you're going to be serious about following Jesus and you're going to be serious about, uh, getting close to the Father, if you're going to be serious about spiritual things, this is one of those issues that you've got to wrestle with. You can't, those who want to be serious about this can't live with blinders and and, and not consider God's sovereignty. Um, And it really gets difficult um, when you have things like what happened this week in Texas. The, The idea of God's sovereignty it doesn't matter where you come down on the thing, control or allow, the, the, the very fact that the second largest mass school shooting in American history could take place has got to raise questions uh, about God's sovereignty. And um, I know it does for me. And I told you when we started this series that I wasn't going to tell you where I stood in that spectrum. Uh, because you got to wrestle with it yourself according to what Scripture says uh, and come to terms with. I, I feel like God's big enough he can handle his own business. It doesn't need me to handle it for him. Uh, and, and, and so th- th- for the serious student uh, of Scripture and of God, this is some stuff that, that you're going to have to wrestle through with him. I'm going to provide you some signposts and some things along the way of your own wrestling, uh, and this series is part of it. I want to say this, that the most vital, the most pivotal event, the, the paramount work of God was a thing called the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, and, and, and when we talk about sovereignty, at some point we've got to talk about the crucifixion. What was the crucifixion about God's allowance or flat-out control when it came to the crucifixion of Jesus? There's a popular song the law churches sing, and there's a lyric in that song that says, Jesus was murdered on the cross. Um, And it seems to suggest as if Jesus could have simply gave himself up to the decisions of evil humanity. 
that's a real dangerous that's a real dangerous position for a, a student of the Bible. As if that the crucifixion wasn't God's designed will, it's just something that happened. That's a real dangerous position to stand. That Jesus was murdered. The Bible's real clear the fact that he wasn't murdered. Because a murder is done against the consent of the one who's killed. Do you understand that? And so for anybody to say Jesus was murdered on the cross, that would mean that that was against his own consent and the consent of the Father. But if it wasn't against his consent or the consent of the Father, what's that mean about the Father? What Father would do that to his son? Have you ever thought about that? So let's understand sovereignty. We have to have some definitions. Sovereignty is God has the power and the authority to do all God wills to do. Even the crucifixion? If God has the power and the authority to either control or allow the crucifixion, what does that say? I mean, think about it. What does that say about how the Father feels about towards the Son? There's a passage of Scripture that is, no, I'll just read it. Isaiah 53.10. The New Living Translation says it like this. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him, Jesus. And the cause of grief. it was the father. It was it was the Lord. It was the Father's good plan to crush the Messiah on the cross. Good plan. I mean, I understand when the Bible says, "For God so loved the world," but what about for the Father loving His own Son? Did you ever think about that? If God loves you so much that. He had his son die for you. What's that say about his love for his son? Have you never? What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to get into some pretty deep theological stuff. So I want you to track with me. You ready? You okay? Yeah? If you don't want to think about stuff, there's a lot of churches I could recommend to you. But we're going to go through some, we're going to go through some stuff that's pretty meaty right now. The idea that Jesus was crucified, that the shedding of his blood at the decision of the Father satisfied God's desire for divine justice against sin. That idea is called penal substitution or penalty substitution. And doctrinally, penal substitution or substitutional or penalty substitution means this. One, that God's perfect justice demands atonement for sin, means payment for sin. God's perfect justice demands that sin be paid for. Secondly, that mankind is incapable of making payment to satisfy God's justice. Thirdly, that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's requirement for justice. That's what that the, this whole thing means. That idea, the crucifixion being so brutal, and that the Father would cause the, crush, the crucifixion of his son, sacrifice his son for my sake, for you, that idea is so brutal 
that some people just can't tolerate it. That they see the crucifixion as being leveled against the Son by the Father. For some, this idea, this penal substitution is so abusive that it's viewed in some people's mind as cosmic child abuse. Just think about it. Who would level this type of penalty against an innocent Some would say that the Christian was not God's idea for the son. What father would choose that for his child? It was just mankind's evil against the son, through which, because of God's love, people have salvation. See, some have the idea that the crucifixion happened, was allowed, was controlled, because God loves us. And a lot of people agree with that. And while that's not untrue, God does love us. For God so loved the world, that gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, that's what the Bible says. But when, when, when you say that the crucifixion happened because God loves us, period, we're missing part of it. See, the crucifixion also happened because sin must be atoned for by the shedding of blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so there's this thing called sin. It's just not because God loved us. If the only reason the crucifixion happened is simply because God loved us, God surely could have chosen a different way. Right? He could have said, yeah, I know what, it's not that big deal, I love you. Come on, you're good. But there's this other element of sin that is only paid atoned for by the shedding of blood. And so today, here's where we're going. Here's where we're going. We have to understand the purpose of crucifixion, and we have to understand how the crucifixion, a part of God's sovereignty, has his power and authority to do all he wills to do. If the crucifixion happened against the Father's will, he has no power and authority to do all he wills to do. So how's the crucifixion part of his sovereignty? For what purpose? The idea that one is killed, blood is shed for the covering of another is all through the Bible. And God's been whispering and giving us shadows of it, foretastes of it. Back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden sinned. An animal was killed. Apparently, by God, blood was shed so they could their nakedness and shame could be covered. Shedding of blood because of sin. In Exodus 12, in the, 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 the nation of Israel, before they became a nation, uh, they were in, in Egypt. And it was by the shedding of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the heart uh, of, the, of, the, of the house that caused the death angel to pass over them, shedding of the blood. Provided for their salvation. Isaiah 53, we're told that the suffering Messiah shed his blood to heal our wounds. Even in the New Testament, in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. In Romans 3, it says that we have the righteousness of God 
of Christ because of his sacrifice. In Hebrews 9 says our sins are covered because of the sacrifice of Christ. 1 Peter 3 says that Jesus' righteousness was substituted for our unrighteousness. See, the crucifixion, please understand, the crucifixion has much more to do than just because Jesus loves us, God loves us. Has much more to do with that. If we think that God allowed, orchestrated the crucifixion because he loves us, period, we're missing the point of it. He does love us, but the crucifixion was necessary because through it, sin was atoned for, i.e. paid for. And Jesus was in full agreement with the idea of going to the cross. Can you imagine? The Father didn't force it on him. It wasn't the Father's decision overriding the Son's decision. Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming. We know from the Bible in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. He chose this becoming. Philippians even more clear, clear. Philippians 2. Who Jesus, get this, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself so much so by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The mindset of Jesus was to make himself nothing, to take on purposefully the nature of a servant and to willingly humble himself to death. So the crucifixion was not the choice of the father overriding the will of the son, not forced upon him. There's no notion of cosmic child abuse. There's no indication that it was a vindictive God against an unwilling Jesus. The crucifixion was not leveled against Jesus at the will of the father, which were Jesus went kicking and screaming. We have to understand this. Here's why. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross. Now, why would he be willing to go to the cross? Certainly, if it was simply just to prove God's love, God could have done that any other way. So, we have to understand the nature of sin. Now, here's, I'm going to guarantee you this. You look to someone sitting on your right and your left. I guarantee you, that person you just saw has sinned. I hope that's not new news to anybody. As good as they are, they done messed up. So we have to understand the nature of sin. Here's what sin is. Let me go back. I don't want you to see that yet. Watch this. If I were to ask us, let's come up with a definition of sin. What would we say? You're afraid to answer right now, huh? Because like, I don't know now. I don't know what I want to say anything. He's going to say I'm wrong. We would say stuff like it's breaking God's law. It's doing something against the will of God. It's breaking what, the rules of the Bible. We would say something along those lines, right? Any thought, action, activity that goes against God's plan. Something like that. Okay. Well, let me tell you what sin is. Let's understand this. 
Because when we view sin like we just said, it makes sin all about us and our behavior. And that's a real dangerous ground on which to stand. Because then we think we're not sinful when we're good people. Which again makes sin and righteousness all about us. Real dangerous ground. And so let's understand. Sin is an affront to a holy God. That's what sin is. Sin is a statement of man against the glory of God. It's not that God desires to be considered holy. It's not that God wants to be viewed as pure. It's not that God wants to be seen as glorious. God's very nature is holy. God's very nature is pure. God's very nature is full of glory. See, the gravity of sin is that it belittles the glory of God. Do you understand? This is why this whole idea of crucifixion is so profound, because of what sin really is. And God will always uphold his glory. God will never allow his glory to be tainted, to be muted, or disregarded. His nature is glory, and he will always uphold his glory. So, therefore, sin must be atoned for because God's justice and glory demands it. Amen. You understand? Amen. So, so, so because God is, his nature is glory, and he will always uphold his glory. Because sin is the belittlement of his glory, the degradation of it by humanity. He will uphold it. And justice says it's got to be paid for. Do you understand that? Now, the other side of the issue of sin is this. The gravity of sin is that it causes a separation between people and God. Now notice, not between God and people. Because nothing can separate God from his own creation. But it separates us from him. That's the gravity of sin. As a matter of fact, the, the book of Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So not only does, is sin a, a, a belittlement of the glory of God, it also separates us from him. So, so here's, here's the difficulty. Now track with me here. God's nature is one of glory. And God's nature is love. Like it's so profound. God doesn't just love. The Bible says God is love. And because God is love, God loves. But God does more than just love because God is love. So God's nature is love and his nature is glory. And so his love necessitates a right relation with his creation. His love pulls him towards us and pulls us towards him. The Bible says it's his loving kindness that leads us to repent. And so his love is always in play, is always active, always pulling us into relationship with him. But that creation that his love pulls towards him and pulls him towards has corrupted his expression of glory through sin. His glory must be upheld. 
which means justice regarding sin. But he loves his creation that has belittled his glory. Do you see the problem? Do you see the issue? Like his nature is love. He cannot not pursue us and calls us into relationship with him. But at the same time, while he's pursuing and calling, he says, you've belittled my glory and that my justice demands that be paid for. So how do you have one that you are so desirous of this relationship with and at the same time uphold glory and demand justice for its degradation? Do you see the problem? And so the dilemma, how does God satisfy his justice and maintain his glory and satisfy his love for his creation? The only way is that his creation needs a substitute to satisfy God's justice against sin. Jesus was not crucified at the hands of uncontrolled men. Jesus, according to the Bible, was bruised by his father. Jesus the son was bruised and crushed, crucified by his father to resolve the tension between the father's love for his glory and the father's love for us sinners. See, God has this love for his own glory and it's not narcissistic or selfish, it's who he is. And God has a love for sinners that have belittled his glory. And the only way to resolve that tension is through someone other than me being the substitute. Because I can't pay it. Does this make sense? You fought to track with me so far? And this is how and why the crucifixion was part of God's sovereign plan. To resolve the tension between his love for you and his love to maintain his own glory. Isaiah 53.10 Different translation, same verse. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Father for the Son's crucifixion. Now, if I say, what does, when you are pleased, what does that look like? I didn't, I didn't say, tell me what it is. I said, what does it look like? Some of it look like you've not been pleased in a very long time. What's it look like when you're pleased? Like that? It's kind of scary, but okay. Like, what's it look like when you're pleased? It's okay. Thank you. I mean, there's a smile. There's a, 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 a light in the eye. Like, when you're pleased. Like, oh, okay, good. A puppy. I like it. You know, there's just. But we're talking about the crucifixion. And it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father to bruise ours. I want you to understand something. That word pleased is not in the sense that God took pleasure in causing or allowing pain. Please don't ever make the mistake of thinking that God has joy in pain. 
not in the pain of the son of the cross and not in any pain you go through. Father does not take joy in that. That does not please him. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a source of joy for the father. Very important, especially in light of what our uh, just went down in Texas. To, under, to remember Psalm 5, 4, oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. Whatever has been perpetrated against you, whatever pain you've experienced, there's no pleasure in the Father's heart over that. Please understand that. The crucifixion pleased the Father. Let's understand what that means. It means, that word pleased means that that, the crucifixion, satisfied the Father's glory and satisfied his love for us. That's what it means. It's, uh, th th it would, there, was, there wasn't joy in the pain of it, but there was the satisfaction that it satisfied his glory and his love for us. And if you were to actually read that chapter in Isaiah 53 and ver the full verse of verse 10 and verse 11, we would see that through the crucifixion, the Bible says he will see his offspring and prolong his days through the crucifixion. Guess who his offspring is? Those of us who believe. And the prolonging of his days throughout eternity. Translation of verse 11 is that he will see the fruit of his suffering. That he'll be able to look down the corridor of time and say, look, because of this, the father's was satisfied, his glory was satisfied and his love upheld through my crucifixion. And I see the fruit of that. I see the coming of his kingdom. I see the salvation of his people. I see the renewal of creation. And it pleased the Father to have these things held in fulfillment. And so sovereignty, his power and authority to do all he wills to do. If God has the power and authority to do all he wills to do, and part of that led to the crucifixion, we have to understand what is the will and desire of God. I'm going to tell you, too, you still tracking with me? You okay? You all right? Need a stretch break? You can get one when I'm done. I got more to go. Here, now, so look at what's the will and desire of the Father. Two things. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Part of the will and desire of God, and he has, the, he has the power and authority to do all he wills to do. And part of what he wills to do is to protect and maintain his glory, and he will not shed it, and he will not share it. So what that means is God's will is that he will protect and maintain his glory, so God must deal with sin because it's an assault on his glory. Do you understand? That's part of the will of the Father. That's part of the desire of the Father to protect and maintain his glory, and he will not share it. He will not. It's his. That's part of his will and desire, and he has the will and desire, the power to, to do all of that. Now, his other will and desire is this. 2 Peter 3.9, Instead, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So while God has his will and desire to maintain his glory and to not share it all, it will not be muted, not by any devil, demon, or human. That's part of his will and his desire. But his other will and desire is that every one of us come into a relationship with him. 
See, God wants everybody to be right with him. So we must then deal with our sin that has separated us from him. And it's these two wills and desires. I will maintain my glory. And I will call people into relationship with me. God's sovereignty allowed and even controlled the crucifixion so that his desires, his glory, and our saving are maintained. So what we must know about the sovereignty of God is that when we think about God's sovereignty in our lives, consider what God's desires are before turning our attention to our well-being. See, here's what it looks like. Most of the time we talk about God's sovereignty, the fact that he has the power and will to do all he desires to do. We think of that in these terms. Well, God, certainly you should desire and will my well-being. And that's why we talk when things go bad, go wrong, we talk about God's sovereignty. Why didn't he? But God's desire and will is not our well-being as its primary concern. God's primary concern, desire, will is his glory maintained and people come into relationship with him. His desire has not changed. His will and desire will always be to maintain his glory and to draw us into relationship. So can we start thinking about even bad things that happen as highlighting God's goodness oftentimes by highlighting humans' depravity, so that we'll humble ourselves, yearn for a better land, and submit ourselves to him. Because that's his desire. Oftentimes that means allowing and highlighting the depravity of humanity to make us yearn for the way it should be. And in those ways, God maintains his glory and draws us to him. Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Understand this verse this way. When my delight and my desire is God's glory maintained and my huddle being in right relationship with him, God will fulfill my desires every time. Because those are his desires. When the desire of my heart is that God maintain his glory and draw people to him through my life, God will always give me that desire. God's glory maintained, my huddle coming to know him. God's sovereignty will always do that which maintains his glory and provides people an opportunity to respond and be in relationship with him, even to the point of the crucifixion of his own son. And sometimes in our world, we sit there and think, God, if you're sovereign, why don't you? And God says, hold on a minute. At the end of the day, I'm going to glorify myself. And through whatever's going on right now, you have the opportunity to yearn for a better land with me and to show your huddle what that looks like. Mm 
Now get this. The son honored the father so much and loves you and me so much that Jesus was in full agreement with the crucifixion. Father, your will be done. Wasn't that his words? Father, maintain your glory. And cause people to desire to be with you. Maintain your glory and make a way for people to come to you. It was Jesus who said, I'm in agreement with you, Father. And so into your hands, I commit my spirit. Through my life, just maintain your glory, whatever that looks like. And through my life, make sure that people know that there's a better way. When that's the desire of our heart, God will always grant us the opportunity to fulfill that desire. And when that's the desire of heart, we start working in unity and in unison with the sovereignty of God. And we start to see God's providential sovereign work in our lives. And we start walking and working together with God's steps as God does all he desires to do in the maintenance of his glory and the drawing people to himself. And when, when we get to that point in life, when that's the desire of our heart, church goers turn into disciples. That's when we change from religious people into disciples, emissaries of Christ. When we say, God, you maintain your glory, whatever that looks like in my life, it's okay. And use me to draw people to you, whatever that, your will be done. And when, when, when church people turn into disciples, life takes on a peace and a purpose that is far beyond our own desires and comfort and entitlements. Do you understand? Tracking with me so far? And when we get to that point, we no longer have this great anxiety when things, our plans in this world don't go as we planned. So the key, come up here, Jared. The key to peace in perilous times. The key to comfort in times of confusion. The key to tranquility and turbulence is submitting to God's sovereignty. Understanding what his desire is. It seems as though whenever we talk about these great profound mysteries, we never come up with enough satisfactory answers and we always lead to just more mystery. And sometimes I think God gets a little kick out of us. Sometimes I think he, he gives us enough. He gives us a little bit of insight and even more questions and kind of giggles sometimes at our effort to try to figure this stuff out. It... it, it It's both simple and complex at the same time. And so my suggestion is it's the best thing we can do is to remember that God will always maintain his glory. That's paramount. And at times, he'll let the world see how depraved and evil humanity can become who has denied his glory 
time and time again. But he'll always uphold it. And sometimes, though the Bible says his loving kindness draws us to repentance, sometimes it's the realization of the depravity and the evil of humanity that draws us to the desire for something greater. Here's what I know. That God so loved. But understand what that means. Everybody knows the football verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish. Have everlasting. God so loves. I get it. Absolutely. But let's not forget that God so loves that he will maintain his glory. God so loves that he will at times let our own depravity and evil be apparent. Why? Because God so loves that he will make us in the face of tragedy and evil desire a better world. He, God so loves. The question you and I are left with Will we return his love with our submission to him and uphold his glory? You and I get to wrestle with that this week. Father, thank you. Thank you that you so loved. Thank you that you still love. Father, I thank you that you loved us so much that you deemed us worthy of the life of your son. I thank you that you didn't take pleasure in it, but that you were satisfied with the maintenance of your glory and the way possible for us to be right with you. Thank you that you so loved. Father, I pray that in this moment that we would submit ourselves Friends, I'm going to give you a chance right now. That if you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, you need to bring yourself under the submission of God. Realizing that he will maintain his glory and not share it with anybody. And a life lived without submission is an affront and a defamation to the glory of God. I don't usually put it in terms this strong, but at the end of the day, it is 100% about our submission and coming under the authority of this God that so loves. So again, for the first time or the hundredth time, maybe you need to take a step of recommitment. I invite you in the quietness of your own heart just to again reaffirm and say, Father, my life too often has been an affront and a degradation to your glory. And you are right in upholding your glory. Thank you that you leveled my charge against Jesus because you so loved. I submit my life to your authority because you so loved. I submit. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a safe God to submit to because you so love. 
Thank you that there's peace in submission because you still so love. Thank you that there's power in submission, not reservation, because you still love. Thank you that neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, not the past, nothing in heaven nor hell can separate us from your love because you are the God who still loves. We live in this moment with the choice of submission. We are yours because you so love. In your name I pray, amen. Let's sing a little bit.